Welcome. Good to see you this morning. Well, we are glad that you're here again. If you're a guest of ours, we are honored to have you with us today. Um, I hope that you have taken advantage of all the opportunities you had this past week to tell somebody your Jesus story. I hope you're remembering to, uh, to take seriously our charge of being a witness and telling people what we know about Jesus. I heard about a, a fifth grade class whose teacher gave them the assignment of writing a short essay about their birth. And so one little boy went home and asked his somewhat prudish mom, Mom, where did I come from? His mother thought for a minute and said, Well, the stork brought you. He said, Well, how about you and Dad? She said, Well, the stork brought us too. Well, how about Grandma and Grandpa? Well, the stork brought them too. So the little boy's essay began this way. This has proved to be a very difficult assignment for me, seeing how there hasn't been a normal birth in my family for at least three generations. <laughs> now, I heard someone say once, we need to know something about our birth so that we can know something about our worth. And I think there's some wisdom to that. I think that's true in families. and I think that's true as a church as well. How did we get here? Where did we come from? Oh, we all know where we are, right? When we come to church every Sunday, right? We know where we are. I hope we know where we're headed. How did we get here? Where did we come from? Where did it all start? Man wakes up early on a Sunday morning, rolled over in bed, turned to his wife and said, I'm not going to church today. She said, what do you mean you're not going to church today? We go to church every Sunday. He said, well, I'm not going to church today. I'll give you three reasons why. First, I never get anything out of the service. I'm never encouraged, nothing. Second, nobody there is really very nice to me. Nobody likes me very much there. And third, nobody cares if I'm there or not. Nobody's going to miss me. She said, you are being so immature about this. First, if you pay attention, there's always something encouragement you can get out of being with other brothers and sisters. Second, there's great people at church. Come on, you know that. They like you. They like everybody. They'll accept anybody, even you. And third, you're the preacher. Somebody's going to notice if you don't show up. Hey, this morning we are going to talk about the birth of the church, and we're also going to talk about a preacher who preached what I think was the greatest sermon ever preached. I've already had three or four people come to me this morning and show me the bullet and say, wow, where's the humility, Tim? Greatest sermon ever preached. I'm not preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. But we're going to talk about somebody who I'm going to argue preached the greatest sermon ever preached. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter, I think preached the greatest sermon ever preached. And I know what you're thinking right now. What about the Sermon on the Mount? I'm not really counting that as a real, true sermon because it didn't have three points in an invitation. <laughs> in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon has three points in an invitation. So I'm going to call it the greatest sermon ever preached. You know, we get a little bit hung up on the greatest of all time, don't we? We like to talk about the goat, right? Greatest of all time. I did a little bit of research this past week trying to find out what experts said about the greatest of all time, different people, different situations. Let me share with you a little bit what I, what I found out. And I'm just the messenger here, okay? Don't come find me afterwards and argue about one of these things. I don't really care that much. But I found it on the Internet, so I know it's true. 
<laughs> Greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. Again, don't, don't argue with me about that. Doesn't matter. Greatest uh, football player of all time, Jim Brown. That's what the experts say. Greatest baseball player of all time, Babe Ruth. Greatest actor of all time. Actually, I kind of agree with this one. Humphrey Bogart. Of all the gin joints in all the world, she walks into mine. Greatest actress of all time, Audrey Hepburn. Greatest movie of all time, which I do not agree with, Citizen Kane. It's not that good a movie. I googled greatest sermon of all time, and there was no consensus whatsoever. I mean, it was all over the board what was the greatest sermon of all time. But again, I'm making an argument today for day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the very first gospel sermon. I learned that when I was 10 years old. I mentioned last week, Acts chapter 2 is a monster chapter. This chapter has implications really through the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Peter stands up in this very first gospel sermon, that's what we like to call it, and what he shares is really direct and it's really powerful and it's really life-altering. It was in the first century and it is today still in the 21st century. We saw last week at the first part of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is turned loose like never before, and the apostles began proclaiming the wonders of God. And we're going to see this week in the second half of that same chapter that the covenant's going to change. The rules are about to change. And I'll mention again, there is so many things that we should probably stop and pay really close attention to, but for the sake of time, we're not going to go exactly verse by verse, even though Peter's entire sermon, at least what Luke records of it, it's only 20 verses long. It's only 20 verses. Probably a lesson there for preachers everywhere. But in those 20 verses, boy, he packs a lot of information. Um, Peter had a message that he wanted to share with those people. And this morning, I'm going to try to share the same message with you. Now, there was a time in my life when if I had been asked, what sermon, what, what's Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 about? I probably would have answered baptism. But that's not exactly true. It's not quite accurate. Now, he talks about baptism for sure, but that's not the focus of his message. That's not really the focus of what Peter is sharing here. Peter, you know, is just a blue-collar guy. He's a fisherman. But he was a fantastic preacher. In fact, ever since Acts chapter 2, preachers have been copying his style and copying Peter's format. I mentioned already that he makes three points and he, and he offers an invitation. You know me, I'm a three-point guy. I like three points. Um, it's about all I can really keep track of. Plus, I know it's about all you can really keep track of as well. Uh, but again, Peter preaches this sermon with conviction and passion. And the three points that he shared... For an awful lot of people in that crowd, it changed their lives. And I'm going to tell you the three points that Peter shared in Acts chapter 2. It changed my life too. And I hope that it's changed yours or is in the process of changing yours. Let's pick it up in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. 
Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Listen carefully to what I say. You might be reading a newer translation that says, make no mistake about this. Peter says, I'm about to share some information with you. I'm about to tell you something. And I really want you to pay really close attention because what I'm about to share is important. And Peter begins the greatest sermon ever preached with his first point. And his first point is Jesus. That's the first point of his sermon. Peter quotes the prophet Joel in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter begins by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, you know him. You remember him. You remember Jesus. And when Peter brought up the name Jesus, there's a probably most of the people in that crowd did remember Jesus. Yeah, the carpenter's son. Right. I remember him. I remember what he looked like. I remember what he sounded like. Jesus, he was the one who spoke so eloquently in the temple. He was the one who traveled around Galilee. He did miracles and signs and wonders. Sure, we remember Jesus. I'm sure there were people in that crowd on the day of Pentecost kind of nudging their guy beside him and saying, yeah, you know, my uncle um, was in that big crowd when Jesus fed everybody with just like a handful of food. He told me all about it. Or my neighbor's uh, cousin had a friend whose father was blind and supposedly Jesus gave him his sight back. Sure, we remember Jesus. He did a lot of good. Stirred a lot of people up. Made a lot of people mad, as I recall. Yeah, Jesus. You know Jesus. And then Peter makes his second point, and his second point is going to build on his first point. Christ. Here Peter refers to the prophet David in verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Peter saying, this carpenter's son, he wasn't just Jesus. He was the one. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. I mean, come on. We have been looking for this one for generations. We have been praying about the coming of the Christ. You have been longing for His arrival. You've been waiting for the Christ to come. He was here. You saw Him. You shook His hand. You heard what He said. You ate with Him. The Messiah, the Christ, was here. There's a tomb on the other side of Jerusalem that's empty because just like David said, death had no power over the Christ. He was here. The Messiah, the Holy One. And then Peter doesn't waste any time before he makes his third and final point. Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's Peter's three points to the greatest sermon ever preached. If he had a PowerPoint presentation, he would only have three slides. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
No, it wasn't very long ago when Jesus was captured, you thought you were in charge. A couple days ago when you were screaming to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, you thought you were calling the shots. On Calvary, when they, when they were people that nailed him to a cross, you thought you were in control, didn't you? Let me tell you who was in control. Let me tell you who was calling the shots. Let me tell you who was in charge. The man that you ridiculed. The man you spit on. The man you beat. The man you nailed to a piece of wood. That's who was in charge. That Friday, make no mistake, Jesus was in control. Jesus was calling the shots. You didn't take his life. He offered his life. You didn't outspart him. You didn't outmaneuver him. This poor, despised carpenter's son, what you didn't realize, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's his sermon. That's the three-point outline of the greatest sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the people who heard that sermon were pretty quick to understand that that meant something. That was a message with some meaning. Now, what exactly is the meaning? What's it mean to you? What's it mean to us that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, let's back up to, to uh, Peter's first point. Jesus. Because He is Jesus, someone does understand. You get that? Because He was Jesus, there's someone who understands. John began his gospel by saying the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. Jesus, He was real. Now He sweated. He worked. He cried. He hurt. Jesus knew how good the sun felt on His face. He knew how much it hurt to lose someone that He loved. He knew pain. He knew loneliness. He knew rejection. The very things that you are struggling with this week, Jesus understood. He knows. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're going through. Don't ever forget His humanity. Don't ever forget that He walked on this earth and He faced the same challenges, the same temptations, the same frustrations that we do. Don't ever forget His humanity. Because if you do, one day Satan's going to come along and Satan's going to tell you, you know that thing you're struggling with? You know that thing you're going through? You know that thing you're tempted with? No one knows what it's like. No one can understand what you're going through. Don't believe that lie of Satan. Because he's Jesus, someone does understand. Don't ever forget his humanity. But then Peter is going to tell us, don't forget his deity either. He wasn't just Jesus. He was also Christ. Because he is Christ, circumstances are never as hopeless as they might seem. Because he's Christ... Circumstances are never as hopeless as they might seem. Jesus is the Christ. That's not His last name. It's a title. And that's not just who He was. That's who He is. The tomb is empty. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, or Ephesians 1, 
I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Remember, we're on this side of Resurrection Sunday, not just this side of Crucifixion Friday. Because He is Christ, we have tremendous hope. And hope is a powerful thing. I heard a story about four elderly women who were living in an assisted living facility and they were near the lobby one day playing bridge when a very attractive elderly man walked in and walked up to the front desk and one of the ladies dropped her cards and says, uh, excuse me, what's a nice looking man like you doing in a place like this? And the man turned to the group and said, well, I'm actually checking in. I'm, I'm becoming a resident here. I'm going I'm to move in here. I'm going to be living here. The second lady says, well, where are you moving from? He said, well, I've, uh, I've been in prison for the last 35 years. Third lady said, why were you in prison? He said, I, uh, I murdered my wife and buried her in the backyard. The fourth lady said, so you're single. <laughs> I'm telling you, hope is a wonderful thing. Hope is a powerful force. Emily Dickinson wrote that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Because He is Christ, things are never as hopeless as they might seem. You need to know that. And you also need to know that because He is Lord, things are never out of control. Now I know sometimes it feels like things are out of control. But because He is Lord, things are never out of control. Now, who's in control of your life? Of your family? Your marriage? Who's in, who's in control of the world? And is anybody really in control of the world, right? Man. Well, there is someone who's in control. Matthew 28, just a breath before Jesus gave what we call the, the Great Commission. He tells the apostles, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is in control. Acts chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, both talk about Jesus being Lord of all. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, somebody is in control because Jesus Christ is Lord. When everything seems out of control, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're having relationship issues, you know, problems with your husband or with your wife, and you're not sure how you're going to get past the hurt, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're struggling with your children, and everything you do seems to like make matters worse, not better, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're struggling with your finances, and there seems to be more month than there is paycheck, and your hours are getting cut, and your car needs new tires, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you feel like you have absolutely nowhere else to turn, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. He knows. He cares. He is in control. And that's Peter's sermon. I told you it was the greatest sermon ever preached. Pretty hard to improve on those three points. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And then Peter says, oh, and by the way, you killed him. Look again at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You killed him. He was here. The Christ, the Messiah. He was here. He was with us. And you killed him. You crucified him. Now, remember, Peter's talking to a multitude of people. Is Peter implying that every one of those people swung the hammer that drove the nail? Is he implying that every one of those people thrust the spear into the side of Jesus? Well, obviously not. But what he is implying, in fact, what he is stating is, you are all guilty of the death of Jesus because of your sin. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. They were guilty of the death of Jesus because they were sinners, just like me, just like you. We're guilty of the death of Jesus because we're sinners as well. Paul understood that when he wrote this letter to the Corinth church. Peter understood that as he was delivering this sermon to the people that were listening, and apparently an awful lot of the people listening understood the implications of that message as well, because what they ask Peter is, what do we do? You're right. Jesus was here. And he wasn't just Jesus. He is the Christ. And he is Lord. And because of our actions, he was put on a cross. What do we do? Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Is there anything we can do about it? Which leads to the invitation part of the greatest sermon ever preached. Peter says, as a matter of fact, there is something that you can do. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter said, you need to do two things. You do two things and God will do some things for you. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. Both equally as important. You know, repentance, well, repent, that's a Bible word. And what, does that, what does that even mean? We can talk a long time about what repentance means, but it certainly involves godly sorrow. And it involves aligning my life, a decision to align my life with the life of Jesus. And it involves a realization that Jesus Christ is Lord. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So you're saying, I can make this right. No. <laughs> you can't make it right. There's nothing you can do that, that will resolve the, the problem and the situation that you're in. You can, however, accept the free gift of grace that God is offering at the cross of Jesus 
you can accept the realization that part of that acceptance is repentance, and part of you accepting that gift involves baptism. You know, I say it's a free gift. That's not exactly true, and you know that. It was, came at an incredible price. We just didn't pay it. Jesus paid the price. Baptism doesn't negate the cross. Baptism confirms the cross. I've had people tell me, and I know they've told you as well, you hear it all the time, well, baptism is a symbol. It is an outward sign of an inward grace. Listen, nowhere in Scripture does God's Word say anything about baptism being any kind of a symbol. It is a participation in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with Him like this in His death, we'll certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Romans chapter 6 is a powerful reminder of our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It says, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Listen, let's make no mistake about this. We're saved by grace, okay? We are saved by grace through faith. There is no other option. Baptism is not an addition to our faith. It's an expression of our faith. It's not a work, not any way that we can boast about it. The only thing we contribute in baptism is the faith in God that He's going to do exactly what He promised He would do. That if we repent and if we submit to Him in baptism, He's going to forgive our sins. And He's going to bless us with the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And that was Peter's invitation at the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached. And guess what? The invitation hasn't changed. In 2,000 years, the invitation hasn't changed. It's the Lord's invitation. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this morning, if you've never done that, I would beg you to consider that decision, or at least consider talking to someone about that decision. Don't put it off. There's so much to lose. and There's so much to gain. Jesus Christ is Lord. And really the question that you've got to answer for yourself this morning is, well, is He my Lord? Because He is Jesus, and He is Christ, and He is Lord. Is He your Lord this morning? As a church family, if we can pray with you or help you in any way, as always, there'll be going to be some people at the front of the auditorium.
and you can meet us there with any prayer requests or uh, any spiritual matter that you might be dealing with. I also want to remind you that uh, right after our closing song in our prayer room, um, there'll be someone there if you'd like to meet with somebody on more of a private level. But as a, as a family, if we can help you in any way, meet us at the front of the auditorium here. Let's stand and sing.